Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's great to gather Sunday morning, and we're continuing the series, Lessons for a Quarantine Church. This is part nine, probably just one or two more in this series, and we'll, we'll do something new and something different after that. Topic this morning is living life with a safe and holy heart. Living life with a safe and holy heart. And the text is about as well known as texts get. Psalm 103, verse 1. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And the phrase that jumps out for our study today, it's, it's six words. And all that is within me. Everybody knows that phrase from the Bible. Uh, I can think back to when there was that rather cynical paraphrase of John 3.16 that said, for God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee. We get the idea that if redemption somehow hinged on a committee decision, we'd all still be lost in our sins in all likelihood. And that's because it's difficult to get a group, even a very good group, to move ahead as one in a united decision. And that's because uh, different heads have different thoughts, different hearts have different feelings, different minds have different preferences. It's not easy to move ahead as one. We find that out in, even in marriage, a good marriage is a matter of constant adjustment. Nowhere is it more important to have unity, and yet nowhere is it more demanding than to take two minds, two lives, and to make them breathe as one over a long stretch of years. It takes no small miracle. Marriage license by itself doesn't do the job. Unity is a lifelong commitment. But that's not the hardest place. Our text probes an even deeper level on this issue. So the psalmist zeroes in on a place where genuine, powerful unanimity is perhaps the most difficult of all to achieve and the most crucial that it be achieved. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So the place where the psalmist says there has to be unity, it's not out there, it's, it's in here. So, so here's the principle. The principle for a safe and holy heart in all seasons of life, the principle is all of me. So everything within, that's the word he uses, everything within me, it has to make the same decision to bless and glorify the Lord in all of life. I grew up, I grew up almost trained to misread those familiar words. This is not about volume in worship, all that is within me. It's not about volume, it's about, it's about unanimity in worship. David is saying that the decision to honor the Lord, follow the Lord, whatever term you want to use, the decision to follow the Lord in life will be a useless decision, a powerless decision, unless every part of his being 
is united in the same decision in the same direction. A partial decision to follow the Lord is not much better than no decision at all. That's what this text is about. It's a huge issue. This is what leaves many professing Christians with the faith that kind of in spite of their their church going and their Bible reading and their wishes, it, it, it never quite feels real. It always seems to be kind of anemic at a pretend level. The remedy is in a careful unpacking. That's what we want to try and do here. An unpacking and an applying of this wonderful phrase that, that every part of the life must unite around worshiping and glorifying Jesus. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then, and then he presses the details. And all that is within me. It's like it's not enough just to say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all, all that is within me, bless his holy name. And he seems to be saying, this won't work. This won't work in any other way. One part of your life offered to the Lord, even offered repeatedly to the Lord, one part of your life has no more power to hold up your Christian walk than one leg has the ability to hold up a table. So we need to think carefully here. Like so many well-known Bible verses, it's easy to agree generally with the concept without ever pressing into understanding the details. And it's in the details that the power lies. So don't let these words and all that is within me, don't let those words just sort of scoot through your mind really quickly. Examine them. Because there's a lot within each one of us. I was thinking about this. We have, we have knowledge. So the accumulated information and understanding of our study and our experience. We all have knowledge within us. It's good. We all possess the capacity of choice. We're creatures of will, volition. So our lives don't just happen to us. We, we choose our way through this world, at least to a very large extent. So there's will within us. We're made up of emotions. So we do have knowledge, true enough, but we're not the same as a computer. We're not machines. We have the capacity to feel, the capacity to be moved, to be drawn in different ways. There's anger, sorrow, joy, contentment, a host of others. God-given, deeply felt reactions to the circumstances of life. So there's emotions within us. We all have desires. That's different. Some desires are good. We all know some desires are bad. So these, these desires can be the raw fuel for the choices we make with our wills. There's a lot going on. There's a lot that lives within each of us. And this is what David is thinking about. That each of these elements... Each of these elements needs to be united, pursuing the Lord together. All drawn in. Let everything that is within me unanimously 
join together to bless and to glorify the name of the Lord. And the key point here in this study is, that's the only way to keep my heart safe and growing in holiness before God. True, I will still make mistakes, to be sure. Here's the thing, though. None of those mistakes will be ongoingly corrupting and destructive in my walk with Jesus if I remember this key idea. I may fail, but I will never stop walking in the light if all that is within me wants to bless his holy name. Here's a few thoughts. Point number one. I took that long introduction just so you'd all feel like you were sitting here in the sanctuary with me. Point number one. The will must move in the same direction as the understanding or the knowledge. True, the mind is very important. I must love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, Jesus said, and strength. But thoughts just by themselves, they don't take much strength. It's, it's the living out of all that understanding. That's what takes the exertion, the work, the effort. We know that knowing the truth, while it's important, we know it's never enough, it's never adequate. James says, therefore, to one who knows, there's the knowing, to one who knows the right thing to do but does not do it, to him it is sin. You don't get points just for knowing. That's what James is saying. I mean, uh, the spiritual life doesn't work like uh, who wants to be a millionaire. You, 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 don't, you don't get to follow Jesus just by knowing the correct answers to enough questions. The, the Christian life isn't like that. Christian life isn't a quiz show. James says people can have all the right answers and still live sinful lives. Now, just to be clear, you always have to balance. David certainly valued truth. If what he says is, is accurate, he spent hundreds of chapters and verses in his songs of worship for the congregation, praising the beauty and the wonder of the precepts of God. You know these words, Psalm 19, 9, and 10, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. No, David spent a lot of time learning the truth in the precepts and the law of God. He, he, says, he says he meditated on it day and night. But he didn't study just to learn the truth. He meditated on it so he could live the truth. Psalm 37, 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Or, or Psalm 119, 104 to 106. From your precepts I get understanding. There's the knowledge. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Path, see? Pathway. You're walking in it. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. 
So, so David said, certainly God's precepts gave him understanding, and understanding is great. You can't start without it. You have to have understanding. It's wonderful, but it's never enough as a solo experience. All that is within me has to unite. You're more than just a mind. You're also a will. The knowledge and understanding God gives you, it's for your feet. It's for your path. It's knowledge that shows up in where you go, where you plant your next step, the direction of your life. If you think I'm laboring the obvious here, listen to these words. They're from a few years back now, but they're still, they're still pungent. George Barna said, quote, while most Americans today claim to be Christians, this commitment is becoming less and less meaningful. Consider the following, Barna says. 85% of all adults claim that religious faith is very important in their lives. Also, about 85% claim to be Christians. More than four out of five adults claim to know the basic teachings of the Bible, and nine out of ten own at least one Bible. So far, so good, Barna continues. Yet, just one in four adults and only one in ten under the age of 20 believes in absolute moral truth. In fact, less than half of those who call themselves born-again Christians believe that anything is absolutely true. And then Barna says that this mental disconnect comes from uh, America's, and I'm, I'm assuming Canada's not that different, uh, evolving values. Bar- Barna says, our culture's embrace of moral relativism has led to an abandonment of traditional values, including loyalty, morality, accountability, and sacrifice. Most distressing, he says, is the fact that the church seems to be right in line with today's evolving values. People's church preferences frequently line up with their relativistic approach to life, often not joining churches these days. Instead, they attend churches based on how far they have to drive, the convenience of the worship schedule, kinds of emotional experiences they can enjoy, and whether or not the sermon is upbeat and interesting. Now, none of those reasons, Barna says, is inherently bad, but all too often, people are choosing their church without regard for doctrinal purity and reliable teaching. Convenience, comfort, and emotion tend to be the values that drive today's spirituality. I'm almost done. Last paragraph. <clears throat> Accordingly, Christians are increasingly indistinguishable from their non-Christian friends. A recent study of 65 common values and traits shows that the values of today's born-again Christians are not substantially different from any other segment of society. Those are still scary words. I mean, you might not realize it right away, but George Barna and King David are talking about the same problem. Christians... Uh, become as Barna describes when they might accept some kind of truth with their heads, but have another truth that guards their wills and motivates their decisions. And that's one of the things that made David pray that everything within him would bless his holy name. Point number two, the will must enforce the prompting of conscience. 
Now, of course, I'm talking about a scripturally informed, uh, sensitive conscience that hasn't yet been hardened or silenced by repeated disobedience. But at least at the beginning, conscience plays this crucial role. I mean, everything successful in the Christian life hinges on the ability not to just give in to every sinful inclination that comes along. We have desires. They're a part of what's within us. We're all creatures of passions, desires. They make up a big coercive part of the all that is within each of us. We need to face this. I mean, no one... No one can consistently avoid all sinful desires. Nobody can, not since the fall. So this means sinful desires have to be dealt with in some way. How are we going to do that? Well, God has made provision. He has placed this moral counterweight in each one of us, at least initially, to pull us in the opposite direction of desires that might appear satisfying, but ultimately, and usually secretly, are self-destructive. And here's the important point. The will, the will can't adjudicate the wildness of desires easily. The will has great power, but only if it's used in a Christ-honoring fashion, choosing the right way. So, So what we need to do now We're thinking about all that is within me. Let it bless his holy name. We need to establish the relationship between the will and the initial promptings of conscience. Here's here's the point. You can't use half a will to deal with sinful desires. You can't use half a will to deal with sinful desires. Here's what I mean. A small or a tentative, a procrastinating decision to renounce a specific sin will never be effective. It's not enough that your conscience takes some kind of initial stab at sinful desire. Unaided by being backed up by the will, your conscience will only vote against sin for so long. Your will has to come to hate it too. Your conscience doesn't have the power to fight off sin on its own for prolonged periods of time. Its only purpose is to prompt, wake up, quicken the action of the will to enforce it. And so now you see we're getting to the heart of David's poetic word and all that is within me, let it bless your holy name. I believe this explains some of the really drastic statements Jesus made about sin. People are often troubled by these words of Jesus in Matthew 18, 8 and 9. Imagine the look on their faces when Jesus said, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, he means sin, cut it off. I mean, did the disciples just start looking at each other like, has Jesus lost it here? Cut it off and throw it away from you. It's better to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be cast into the eternal fire. Yes, Jesus talked about that eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It's better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. 
So there's this debate over the exact meaning of those words from Jesus. I mean, people seem almost shocked that he ever uttered them. Does Jesus really want us to be physically maiming our bodies? And if not, what's he trying to say? I think a couple of things. I mean, eyes, hands, feet. I think Jesus means this. First of all, sinful desires, temptations that come. When I have to deal with sin in my life, those things that I'm asked to put to death, they feel as much a living part of me and as important to me as my eyes and my hands and my feet. In other words, when I'm being prompted to deal with sin, it feels like I'm asked to deal with something I can't live without. Isn't that true? Isn't that the way temptation comes? Isn't that the way it gains its power? It makes us feel like, well, I, I can't, I can't do without that. It would be like cutting off my hand. Another thing, I believe this is Jesus' way of saying that you and I won't be able to resist sin with small, casual decisions. The conscience can come, it can convict, a few initial stings, stabs, but, but if the whole will, the whole being doesn't unite with conscience, using half your will to fight sin is a losing game. Jesus is saying what David said, a big part of victory comes from all that is within me being united in the same choice. When I was a kid, I can still remember I had a book. I don't know where I got it. Sometimes it would be read to me and when I could read it myself. Being a typical boy, I love these stories, Civil War stories. I confess, I love the, the gory details of wounded soldiers, how they would be liquored up and then a hot knife or sword would cut through the flesh and you'd get these descriptions. Remove an arm or a leg and the bone would have to be sawn in two. Whatever else you say about that practice, it's a big decision. You don't make it lightly. Whenever I counsel people, to this day, well, I don't do as much, of course, right now, but whenever I counsel people and they tell me they're thinking about, they're thinking about, uh, you know, quitting smoking, or they're thinking about breaking off a sinful relationship, or they're praying about their addiction to pornography. As soon as they start to say that, I know they're not going to make it. There's no gradual, delicate way to cut off a hand. You make some decisions drastic and definite, or you don't make them at all. So I believe Jesus is saying, we, we usually don't grow out of these kinds of besetting sins. It takes an honest look at our own hearts, doesn't it? All that, in, that is within me. I mean, everyone hates sin generally. We sing about it. We talk about it. Sin is bad. Holiness is good. To hate sin generally, that's easy. I think it's expected. But Jesus makes the point of forsaking any specific sin. He makes that a very different story. It, it's, it's, like, it's like plucking out your eye once you get right down to it. So, 
The secret to victory is to have your whole being, all that is within you, everything moving toward the same goal, everything committed in the same direction, the same effort, the same determination. When your conscience deals faithfully and it puts the spotlight on some specific sin, make sure your decision with the will is just as faithful as the prompting of your conscience. Make sure they're working together. It takes determined, holy effort. Okay, point number three. We're almost done. Here's more about this all that is within me. Thoughts must be governed by reverence. Thoughts. There's, there's an incubation point of all sin and all holiness. Your, your thoughts make up a huge part of the all that is within you. To, to profess pure worship and devotion in a church with an impure mind, it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go anywhere. So when you talk about your thoughts, this is where my pursuit of holiness must run deep. And here's why. <clears throat> I have enough personal pride in me that I don't want to be caught doing bad actions. People can see my actions and my reputation is affected by my actions. But nobody else on earth can see my thoughts. And what that means is, here's the problem, there's no external pressure to keep my thoughts holy because no one's going to know if they aren't. So this is why the keeping of the thought life, it may well be the best indicator of what is most purely spiritual in my walk with Jesus. The only incentive for a pure mind is devotion to Jesus and yielding to the Holy Spirit. So examining your thoughts will take away anything phony and pretentious out of your relationship with Jesus. Jesus talked about it. Mark. 7, 21 to 23. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from the within. He's saying that the thoughts, that's where these things incubate. That's where they start in that unseen part of you. But it's a part of all that is within you that has to bless his holy name. This is what Jesus meant when he said, if you want to make the outside of the dish clean, you don't start with the outside. You start with the inside. And that way you get everything clean in the most effective way. So I hope you can see this principle. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. And stop and make sure. Look at the things that are within. Conscience. Your will. Desires. Thoughts. Emotions. And make sure when you decide, we sing it, you've decided to follow Jesus. It's a great song. As long as you're sure you know what you mean 
when you say, I've decided? How much of you? Which parts of you? Because when it's all that is within you, oh my goodness, that's the way to keep your heart holy and safe before the Lord. So, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Let's pray. Your word, it searches our hearts. It's, it's so extensive in the way it calls us to make a choice to follow you. Forgive us. Forgive us for all the points where we make that decision smaller than it needs to be. Thank you for your grace. When we study a subject like this, there's not one of us who can't say, boy, I, I need, this has to change, this has to grow, this has to mature, this has to be included. And you're there. You're there with your, your gracious, sympathetic heart to pull discipleship and extend it to all the areas of our lives by your Holy Spirit. We love you for that. And so, Lord, we pray with David, unite Unite my heart to fear your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.